Hi, this is Tim Huckleberry coming to you from Gen Con from Fantasy Flight Games. You're listening to the Grim Dark Podcast. Stay tuned. D20 Radio, your gamers roll. radiocom for the day. Sorrow awaits the full party. Hello gamers and welcome to episode 46 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Matt. Uh, if you don't know, Mike is not with us. We're actually recording at Gen Con at the moment, so uh, both Matt and myself are over here. Matt, you may recall from our sixth episode, the one that we got stuck on, where we did our, our Dark Heresy playtest. So Matt is part yep. of our uh, playtest group. He also plays in my Scion campaign. You run Black the Black Crusade, Crusade campaign. Um, so Matt's well familiar with the, with the 40k systems and the setting. And uh, he's over here at Gen Con as well. Mike, unfortunately, couldn't make it on the basis of getting himself engaged and you know has to spend his money on his wife-to-be rather than on, on trips to North America. But uh, I managed to wrangle Matt here. Because um, <clears throat> I've come to North America, yet I've still managed to find an Australian co-host. Uh, with that being said, uh, we're now recording the start of the show. I'm not sure. I don't think we're going to record the whole, whole show in one sitting. Uh, I may record parts of the show later on during the course of the weekend. It's only the Friday night and Gen Con runs Thursday through Sunday. Uh, but I wanted to get some stuff done now, so um, Matt will join us for a few segments, and then I might try and find someone else to join us for more, or I might do them on my own, we'll just have to wait and see. So uh, watch this space to see how this episode pans out. Uh, if you are listening to us for the first time, this is going to be a bit of an unusual episode, but we are a podcast devoted to role-playing in the 41st millennium. We focus on the gaming systems created by Fantasy Flight Games, particularly Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade and Only War. Each episode, we focus on a different game setting. Uh, ostensibly, tonight's uh, episode would be about Rogue Trader. We were sort of hoping that maybe we might see some announcements about the future of Rogue Trader at Gen Con. That hasn't panned out so far. We'll talk about that more in the main part of the show. But, uh, yeah, so a little bit about Rogue Trader, a bit of just general Gen Con news, and uh, we'll see what we can get you to. Before we get into the actual episode breakdown, though, I normally like to talk about what we've done in our last fortnight of gaming. Obviously, a big portion of our fortnight for each of us is included traveling to North America, but uh, since last episode, we did actually end up uh, getting together. We were going to be playing Mike's Mage game, but due to scheduling issues, that sort of fell through, but because uh, I had to move my life around between traveling to get to the game, I said, no, let's still do something. And so our friend actually ran uh, the Weird Miniatures Through the Breach role-playing setting, which is the role-playing game based off the world of Malifaux, yes. I believe. And uh, yeah, so the idea was to get out a look. Matt, did you have any thoughts on that game? I mean... That you want, you're willing to share. I, keep in mind that Kieran doesn't listen to this, so he's not going to hear any. Oh, it's comments. terrible. <laughs> no, it was it was good. Um, we sort of, I think we hit a point where he prepared up to the point, and then we went past it, and he wasn't quite sure what to do there. But you know, it worked out, and you got to get your fight on and knock down. A... How, how did you find the cards as a resolution system? So just to give some background, this game. Is built on a, a miniatures game which uses cards for resolution cards. Ra- rather than uh, rather than dice, and so likewise the RPG is based on cards as well. Mm. Um, I think it worked uh, reasonably well. There was always a point where 
you know, you're learning a new system and you're a bit slow at it. But as we went on, we sort of just, you know, got an idea of the system and working how it all worked out. And that worked quite well. I think better towards the end of it once we'd sort of done a couple of draws and had an idea of what we were doing. I quite liked the character creation, I think. Everybody sort of had very flavorful characters by the end of the character creation and had an idea of what they were. And Yeah, it sort of seems like the sort of system which defines your character through character creation. You, yeah. you, should, you can't really go in there with a strict idea of this is the character I want to build mm-hmm. because enough stuff gets thrown at you randomly that really okay well I can't build that character with what I've got you know I'm mm-hmm. sort of, uh, I need to I need to roll up my, my stuff first or deal out my stuff first and then work out what that sort of fits with would you say that's uh... um, I think you can it just sort of requires uh, that you manage to fit oh well I'm the I'm a child of a necromancer and I wanted to play a boxer how am I going to fit that in so you, you sort of go well do you, you know, do you, do you reject all of the magic and you went away with it? Or, yeah, necromancy yeah. wasn't working out for me, so I thought I'd hit things with my fists. Pugilism yes, yes. is the is future. Yes. Necromancy is dead. Yes. Terrible. That was yes. terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but, yeah, it, so, but you could do that. You'd, you'd have some knowledge of, well, in this case, necromancy, and, but then you'd be able to, uh, so that would always sort of influence your character. But you could still sort of spend, you had the um, bit where you could sort of assign the traits and skills you wanted. Uh, it just sort of, gave you a flavour of you would always be the necromantic boxer yeah you're a hobby necromancer that's it just yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or your parents were necromancers so you know you you were like a non-practicing necromancer yeah that's, okay that makes makes sense I guess my my, my father was a lawyer so I, I, I have a uh, sort of uh, an understanding of the law no, I, I like I like to I like to think I do I probably give a lot of people really bad advice that leads, leads to them being prosecuted for crimes they probably shouldn't have committed but uh in real life or the game? No, no, in real life. Oh. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely an armchair expert. I wouldn't be running a podcast if I wasn't. Uh, anyway, so that, that was through the breach. I mean, for me, I, I will just say that uh, there are a few, I guess what you would call weird West settings out mm. there. You know, that probably... Deadlands. The, yeah, Deadlands is probably the best known one. And, and I probably didn't see enough of the setting to really be able to differentiate. Like, I'm not from, that familiar with Malifaux. I did mm. pick up through the breach at Gen Con last year. Uh, to have a look through because I, I, once again it was the system that interested me more than the, the setting at first but you know now I've had a chance to look at the system I wouldn't mind knowing more about the setting and seeing what differentiates it from other systems like yeah. Deadlands and uh, what was the other one what was that miniature game that came out at Gen Con last year that was very popular uh, the western one put me on the spot here aren't I know. oh you are um yeah. It's not important if you don't know. It's fine. No, I'm not sure. I, I, thought, I, thought, I, thought, I thought that given that you work in, a, I don't know, a gaming store, yeah. you might know most games off the top of your head. Uh, I know a lot of the games <laughs> off the top of my head, but not necessarily all the miniatures. Like uh, the Deadlands okay. LCG, well, not the living card game, they don't call it that. They'd get sued if they called it that. Um, got released last year, and so we sort of have focused more on that. Um, that's all right. Yeah. If you pick out there as well, Matt, Matt is my local FLGS proprietor, so uh, he's who I get all my uh, 40k books through, for example. So uh, often I'm putting in my orders for books before we get together for a gaming session, mm. or whatever it might be. Anyway, we've rambled for quite long enough. Uh, just a quick overview of tonight's episode. Uh, as I mentioned, it is a road trader one. We'll do our regular news section. Then we're going to talk all about uh, Gen Con, what's been happening, what we've seen, what's been going on, what we expect in the next couple of days. Uh, and then we might uh, actually you'll probably find later segments I might refer to what happened in, sun, in uh, Saturday and Sunday depending on when I record them uh, I'm going to be talking about the Croot as a career discussion I'll think of a plot hook some war gear I will find something to review once again I was hoping to review uh, Forbidden Stars but uh, travel 
once again, we'll that. We did actually sit down today at Gen Con for a... Well, we stood up, actually, for a, a demo of it, but mm-hmm. uh, probably not enough to be able to give a, a full review. So I will think of something else to review between now and an hour and a half from now in the show. Uh, and then we will come up with some other topic to discuss before we go on to our community section and close out the show. So I know I sound really disorganized, but I promise you by the time this goes to air, you will have a full episode to listen to. I won't be just going, uh, 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 uh for 40 minutes. Anyway, so let's uh, move on to the news section. Command acknowledged accessing Imperial archives. All right, so there's been nothing new on the horizon from FFG for the 40K, uh, role-playing lines at least. Yeah. Uh, we did see the release of Warhammer Conquest, uh, The Great Devourer at Gen Con, so I was pleased to see that when I got to the stand on, uh, on Thursday morning. I've picked my copy up here. It's here in my hot little hands, still wrapped in the shrink wrap. Yes. Because Gen Con is such a rush, I haven't had a chance to actually pull it out and read through it. But the box looks fantastic. Oh, it does. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, it's got you know it's pictures on it. There's words. There's a QR code, so you can even see what cards are inside without even opening the box. Yeah, so there's pictures of the tokens. There's pictures that are of the, Yes, exactly right. Yep, exactly. Yeah, there you go. So definitely, uh, there are, there uh, if, are. if you like boxes and boxes with things in them, it's definitely a product to pick up. No, seriously, uh, you know we've all seen the, uh, the the previous previous for it. We know the Tyranids are a faction which stands alone as such uh, they, they can't ally with any other race no one apparently likes Tyranids uh, and the question did come up during the uh, in-flight presentation today what's going to happen with the Necrons and I think the rather evasive answer was well we can't talk about any unreleased products but you may look back at the wheel and see that the Tyranids had an icon there and they got their own box set and the Necrons have an icon there and draw your own conclusions Yes. so we just speculating here may see more about a Necron box set in the future uh, but right now, the only release is that, um, uh, that that box set from Gen Con, anyway. And we'll obviously get out and have a chance to play it later on. I don't have my rest of my Conquest set here, so I can't really play it here. But I'll save that for a future episode when we're back in the city with Mike. Uh, on the Games Workshop side, uh, no big announcements. I mean, Age of Sigmar is a, a big part of what they're doing right now. That's uh, sort of the focus, I think, for at least the month. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so, definitely. I mean, I went along. They had two stands at Gen Con. One was uh, literally just Age of Sigma, and the other was the Forge World stand, which is more of a retail stand. No demos, though, I noticed. They, I, no. I would have thought that with a, with a new game, they would have... Uh, well, there actually, wasn't actually a Games Workshop present. It was actually a Forge World present, so I'm not sure if... No, from what I was told, that the, the stand that was just Age of Sigma was actually a Games Workshop stand. Okay. Like, if you, if you looked in the con guide, you saw... Games Workshop had one stand, that number. Right. Forge World had one stand, which was the other number. Okay. Uh, and look, the guy who was there, uh, you probably would, if, if you follow anything about Age of Sigma, you would know that it is a divisive product right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I certainly, sitting down uh, in line for early access, found people saying, oh, this is you know, the worst thing ever that's happened to fantasy uh, you know, Warhammer. It's going to, uh, I'm not going to play it. There's no more tournaments. And what's this whole no point system? And other people are saying, oh, but the figures are really great and the setting's really great. Definitely, the guy at the stand he drank the Kool Aid. He, mm. I didn't matter, didn't matter what I said. Oh, how, how do you respond to claims about the fact that this is bad? He's like, no, no, this is this is perfect. This is the best game we've ever made, ever will be made. You should totally buy it. It's on sale at the stand over at Forge World. Mm. Um, so I haven't yet picked it up because it's too big to take back in my package in my in my um, uh, carry on luggage. Uh, I will say, without going into too much detail, I have been badly burned by Games Workshop and on fantasy gear in the past so I haven't played fantasy for a long long time uh, but that will still follow the developments yes. over on the 40k side however from Games Workshop not any really big news uh, more Imperial Guard figures and some more Tyranids 
So we did speculate last episode that maybe with the extra Imperial Guard figures there'll be a new codex coming out because they are sort of turning around codexes quite fast. No sign of that on the horizon um, and now they're on the Tyranids as well. So they could just be sort of buffing out the range. I mean, most of the new releases are uh, these sort of army box sets. Yeah. So I, I guess they are sort of moving into this concept of, uh, of making the game more approachable by saying here's one purchase, it's an expensive purchase, but this will get you everything you need to get going. Actually, just getting back to Age of Sigmar for a second, uh, we sort of talked briefly last time about the fact that it looks like they have removed Slanesh from the setting. Uh, he's been replaced by the Great Horde Rat. Of the Skaven. From the, from the Skaven, who's, who's apparently crawled his way onto Slanesh's chair after uh, followers of the High Elves managed to imprison Slanesh. Uh, and the interesting point they raise is the fact that uh, the followers of Slanesh are still there. They are still seeking to free their god from um, imprisonment, uh, from, from imprisonment. Or find him or exactly. do whatever which means potentially that there is still an avenue for people who have Slanesh armies like you know, they might have Slanesh demon army or they might have you know, another army with Slanesh figures in it to still play that uh, group as a you know, they, they don't have their god there to support them as such but they are still a questing band of... yeah a viable group within the, the context of the setting as well so um, they haven't completely just written it out it's not a, not a total retcon like, like GW's done in the past and things like squats so uh, yeah there are still some I mean maybe, maybe later on they will get written out I don't know but we'll just have to wait and see um, that's about it from the games workshop side Eternal Crusade are you an MMO player at all have you ever I, given up part of your life to a game I played a lot of uh, several games and then sort of a bunch of the early MMOs came out and I saw a lot of people giving up a lot of their lives to the MMO, and I figured that if I started playing, I would give up about as much time. And so I, I have I have stayed away from the very addictive substance these MMOs. All right, so very sensible man there. So I don't know much about Eternal Crusade. I have, I've been watching okay. it and listening to it. I've just you know made the decision not to play it. I must admit. Okay. Um, so there was a Twitch live stream today. Uh, I haven't watched it because Gen Con. Uh, but there was a State of the Crusade uh, email that went around about a week ago, sort of talking about the way that the uh, uh, the location control works as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, so effectively, you've got these uh, segments of the map uh, where you can then have a, a fight can be staged over them. When you have this fight, you've got an attacking side and a defending side, and each side has different objectives that are mutually exclusive they have to try and achieve. And then each territory, as it changes control, uh, it contributes to the whole campaign once again each side of the campaign has key objectives they're trying to achieve they may want certain areas they might want areas with certain resources whatever it might be that you know there's this sort of ongoing campaign narrative that you sort of work your way through so as, as war games go i think they sort of come up with a good idea to really get that large scale battle feel and it's still one large server it's not like multiple different you know, yeah yeah that's right it's, it's only, only a single server so you may find that each battleground you know from a technology point of view is a separate server as such, but it's not like you could say, you're not going to say, oh, you're playing a Turtle Crusade? I'm playing a Turtle Crusade. Which server are you on? Oh, I'm on that server. We can't play together. No. If, you're, if you're playing a Turtle Crusade, when it comes out, presumably you will be with your friends unless you're on opposing sides. But, uh, you know, it certainly sounds like some uh, some good stuff to for that game and we're hoping to see Faro's access very soon. All right, well, let's get on to our next discussion. Knowledge is how hide it well. Okay, let's talk about Gen Con. So, start off with Matt. Why don't you tell us why you've come to Gen Con? I've come to Gen Con because I work in retail and distribution. So, I'm here to interact with vendors and 
you know, manufacturers and sort of discuss with them what's going to be coming out, you know, uh, do orders. That's and also fun. because I... I'm an incredible geek. And, yeah, I was going to say, like I said, that's what you tell your boss. What are you actually doing here? Because, I mean, you, you, you come to Jenkins each year with orders from all your friends for stuff to pick up. You know, you mm. picked up stuff from me in the past. Yeah. Uh, you know, you get you, you get a chance to game at all at Gen as well? Um, usually I try and get in a couple of games after hours. Uh, there's usually a lot of me during the sort of opening hours of Gen Con uh, demoing a bunch of the games that are going to be coming out. So I'll play, you know, board games or role play or, games. Or being demoed too. Well, be demoed too, yeah. sorry, yes. Uh, so to get an idea of what's going to be coming out and try and see what we'd be wanting to order in so in that respect it's a work thing okay. I have to come across the world and play a bunch of games and try and find the good ones to order now your job must suck I know it's, um... <laughs> but no it's, I mean, how many years have you been coming to Gen Con for now? Uh, this is the sixth year I think okay and have you seen big changes over that time? it's definitely gotten a lot bigger um, over that course um over that time it's there's uh, I'm not sure there's definitely been a group of companies Fantasy Flight who have gotten a lot bigger in their footprint on the floor some of them are companies that we would have previously seen uh, you know are no longer with us yes. there's no White Wolf uh, Whiskey isn't here this year there's a couple of other sort of companies who you know have shifted their focus or aren't coming here as much or you know, there were years where Wizards of the Coast didn't have any presence here um, to see they don't have any presence in the actual body of the hall they did last year but they've got a very a very large section sort of in one of the side halls okay um, yeah alright well, let's talk about what we've actually seen at Gen Con so far so keep in mind this is at, right now we're as of the second day in Gen Con so this is at the close of Friday with Saturday Sunday still to play out so mm-hmm. Uh, I get it on Tuesday night, not much on Tuesday night because hardly anyone's here, but uh, Wednesday, uh, first off, I was able to get along to the D20 Radio Dinner. So as you know, part of um, uh, well, our show is part of the D20 Radio Network, which is a, a network of podcasts. Uh, it was organized at uh, GM Dave, who is the host, one of the hosts and producers of the Order 66 podcast, organized an event at the Old Spaghetti Factory. And uh, yeah, so I got to meet a lot of people there. Most people, I think, were there for Order 66, so big Star Wars fan, you know, was corrupting me and saying, "Hey, you're Grim Dark podcast. This is fantastic." It was more sort of like, "Oh, you're Grim Dark podcast. Okay, so what do you think of Star Wars?" Uh, but you know, we had, had a good chat. I met some people that are, are quite key to that brand, like uh, Sterling Hershey and Keith Kappel, who are both writers for that brand as well. And uh, yeah, no, it was it was a good chance to catch up and do a bit of networking with people. And uh, I, I spent a lot of time telling stories, comparing differences between Australia and. North America, between food and tipping and hotels and the weather and deadly animals, um, you know, but it was, a, it was a good social visit anyway, but after that I got to actually catch up with uh, Tim Huckleberry from FFG, so their bus came into town, uh, caught up with uh, Tim for a drink, and uh, he pretty much lit a fire under all my recent speculation, you know, first off, uh, so yeah, Annie Fisher has moved on to other things, you know, other secret projects that are not the Star Wars role-playing game, they're board games. Uh, you know, Tim Huckabee still, you know, focusing just on the 40k line, you know, despite the fact there's no books being announced. Oh, he's also doing Star Wars books, you know, so, but yeah, certainly nothing led me to believe that we're not going to see more material, just the fact that all the, the basis for my, my rumor starting from the last episode was all pretty much wrong. But uh, anyway, look, it was a good chat, you know, and it was actually good as well, because now that I've been playing a bit of the Star Wars role playing game with my own group, uh, I always sort of feel compelled with Tim, you know, look, Tim produces the 40k line. 
going to really talk 40k with Tim. Uh, but no, no, now I know he's working on Star Wars. We can also geek out about the Star Wars brand as well. Mm. But uh, yeah, I mean, Tim, Tim knows the party line. He knows that when you can't say something, he won't say something. So uh, it doesn't matter how much you know I try and ply him with alcohol or you know offer him bribes or sexual favors. There's, he's not going to budge on. I'm giving you some information, but uh, yeah, it's still very, it's still a lot of fun to catch up with with Tim anyway. So that was a great, great time then. Uh, we did the trade day on yeah. uh, on on the Wednesday as well. So yes. uh, obviously Matt, being a retailer, gets to uh, go to some trade day events. Uh, I, being a member of the press for my podcast, also get to go along too. Went to a nice little event on Kickstarting, which mm-hmm. pretty much my preconceptions about Kickstarter were the exact same ones that. Uh, the host pretty much said everyone hasn't gets wrong all the time. Yep. You know, it's like Kickstarter's just meant, it's free money, right? You know, but uh, apparently not. No, apparently no. you have to actually have a plan and and work and that sort of stuff. So, you know, my my dreams of getting rich on Kickstarter have quickly quickly died. Yeah. I mean, he's only run well, he's 184, I think he said. Yeah, he's, he's run more Kickstarters than anyone on the planet, according to Kickstarter, apparently. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Uh, did you sort of catch any other really interesting events? Um. There was a couple of ones about sort of, you know, like role-playing games in stores. There was one about sort of... Uh, there were a couple of events, uh, but they're more sort of interesting from a retail perspective than I think for anyone who's not in retail, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, that's the idea, I guess. So. Yeah, yeah. But uh, of course, the great thing about being um, trade or being uh, press is you get early access. It's true. That's it. On the first day, Thursday morning, you can actually enter the hall from 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. Now, I learned last year that just because you can get in from 9 a.m. doesn't mean that you will, mm-hmm. because people line up for it. So I was originally planning to head down there 7 ish, but mm-hmm. still jet lagged. I was awake not long after 5, and so I decided to head down there about 6 ish. Yeah. Now, I was lucky enough to be fifth in line to go through the door, but I had to wait for three hours before that. Uh, Funnily enough, I was with the same group of people I was with at the front door last year. So, this, you know, the same people each year like to sort of get there early. Uh, and by the time nine o'clock rolled around, there was a pretty massive line. Did you but did you get there before nine or after nine? I actually got there... Um, I got to sort of the convention center at about uh, a bit before, but just because it was so packed, getting there got me a bit late. So I ended up getting through the door by about, I think, quarter past nine or twenty past nine. Which was fine because I managed to get to all the places that I sort of was going to be going to. I grabbed a whole bunch of the sort of stuff that people asked me to grab, and uh, managed to drop off Tim Tams to a couple of people. And Tim Tams are an Australian chocolate biscuit, by the way. I was pointing yes. out for those who don't yes. know. Uh, so I managed to get through the door right on nine o'clock, mm-hmm. and I made a beeline straight to the FFG stand. You know, got to got to support the boys that I, I talk about anyway, mm-hmm. and see what see what was new. Got in line. I think I was about the third person onto the store floor because. Despite being the fifth person through the door, all the other retailers make sure they get straight over to the ones they want products they want to buy at the start as well. Yeah, all of the exhibitors get in early as and, well because they have to set up. That's things. right. Yeah, and the way that the FFG stand works at uh, at Gen Con for the early party anyway, when there are limited products to be run, is that I have a person who at the uh, line will be handing out uh, cards or chits for particular products. So you get there and say, "Look, I really want to buy this one limited edition product." They give you the chit for it. You take that to the counter inside, give them the chit or the card, whatever it is, and they then give you that product. And once all those cards are gone, that means all that product is gone. They so, actually do it for the day so that you can grab the chits and you don't have to stand in line for um, you know, three hours or whatever to just to wait to get the front of the line. But yeah. for that day, if you come back later uh, and you give in your chit, then they'll, you'll, they've got stock set aside That's for... It. 
So I'm sitting there in the line with my fingers crossed going, you know, come on, road tracing edition, come on, enemies without, you know, come on, something good for a 40k. And, the, and uh, I think it was Andy Fisher at the time came up to me and said, okay, so your options are X-Wing, Netrunner or Game of Thrones. So I put on my best sad face and walked suddenly onto the stand because yes, I do play X-Wing. Uh, yes, I do play Netrunner. Yes, I do like Game of Thrones. But they're not while I was actually there. And I didn't want to buy those products to have to pay all the excess luggage getting it back to Australia when I would happily wait for those products to come out in your store mm-hmm. and support your store by buying them there. So well, thank you. that's what a good friend I am, you see. This is, yeah, yeah, this is why we, we can still keep hanging out. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, got onto the stand, had a look around, found Conquest of Great Devour, which I knew was there because they had posted a picture of their stand on Twitter the previous night uh, that had Conquest in view. So I went straight to that, got that. Uh, picked up uh, Force and Destiny core rulebook, which I, you know, once again, a Star Wars player, quite looking forward to that. And the gem screen as well. Uh, I was going to pick up End of the World, uh, Rise of the Gods, uh, Wrath of the Gods, but um, once again, probably not going to be. You know, I, I can only really read one gigantic tome for the rest of my holiday here in North America, so I thought I'll, I'll, I'll make that Force and Destiny, and I'll get Wrath of the Gods when I get back to Australia once again for myself. Uh, but yeah, nothing else there to speak of. They had Dark Heresy Second Edition lined up at the at the or at the purchasing counter. Basically, they had the main book. Forgotten Gods, um, Enemies Within, and the GM screen, but otherwise nothing else to speak of. Uh, there was some hope held out because they have what they have is a sort of one wall of the stand is basically a glass display case with several compartments that have different products they're releasing either at the show or previewing at the show, and they always leave a whole section of those blank with a little sign saying this section will be filled after the Fantasy Flight in-flight presentation on on Friday. So I'm still hopeful. We okay. There's there's a space there right next to the Force and Destiny. So maybe there is another role playing product that's going to come out, and you know I won't be disappointed. So because um, I you know, did tweet about that as well, to make sure everyone knew what was going on. I sort of hit the show floor. Uh, what else did I do? I, I went and checked out the Games Workshop stand to catch chat with the guys there about Age of Sigma. Uh, I caught up with Ross Watson, who we've had on the show a few times recently. So Ross is currently working on uh, Torg Eternity. So Torg is a did you ever play Torg? Do you even know Torg? I know Torg. I haven't played it, but I've sort of looked through some of the books before I started working, you know, in the before times. <laughs> I mean, Torg was a role-playing game, for, I want to say from the late 80s, early 90s. It was. Yeah. West End, maybe? Or maybe something else. I don't even recall. I'm not going to Google it right now, but it was uh, a, a, an odd game of... It's much to mention hobbing. More sort of like, you know, different, different. parallel universes that were based around unusual concepts like one, one for example was like a noir detective style setting one yeah. was a high tech cyberpunk setting one was a sort of feral jungle um, you know, with dinosaurs sitting and such and so and characters you, were as you travelled it sort of changed your character as well didn't yeah, it yeah your character came from one particular setting but you know technologies and skills and whatever that, that resonated more with the setting were more powerful in that setting and so trying to fire a gun in the you know in the, in the savage world as such was not going to go very well for your character as so and, and you know, Ross has been uh, involved with the, the team that's been updating that, so I had a chat with Ross about that as well, and a bit more about Savage Risk, but I felt a bit guilty about talking to Ross about a product other than the one he was actually on the stand to talk about, so uh, later on in the weekend I'm going to catch up with Ross for some more drinks and we'll wax lyrical about 40k computer games and other, other projects he's working on, although once again I'm sure that Ross won't be spilling the beans on anything that he might be working on for FFG or be working with as well, so uh, he does still do a bit of freelance work for my own stand too. But we'll just wait and see what happens anyway. So, 
Uh, that was good. Uh, what else did I do? I, I jumped in on the new Battletech Kickstarter. I've been playing Battletech since it first came out, and um, one of the original creators is now working with Hairbrain Schemes, who did uh, the Shadowrun Returns game recently, and they're going to kickstart a, uh, ta- a turn-based tactical Battletech game with, with, some, strong... with some RPG elements as well. Yeah. And literally, this is, I think, the first turn-based Battletech game since the Crescent Force Revenge in... 1980 or 1990 something once again you know, late, late 80s early 90s old sort of 16-bit game in the style of the old D&D computer games as well mm. um, sequel to the Crescent Hawks Inception so you know unless you are you know well into your 30s and a Battletech fan you would have heard none of these games but uh, uh, yeah I've got behind that uh, what else did I pick up I went and checked out the Onyx Pass stand because I, you know you would have heard I uh, run a Scion game regularly that Matt plays in and uh, the Onyx Path are in the process of updating Scion to a second edition so I wanted to catch up with the developer for that um, I also checked out a couple of new games that they had sort of some independent games I went to look and see if there's anything I might be interested in bringing home to my role playing group I also managed to find actually a novel that I used to have that I lent to a friend that what they subsequently lost they had that on, on a stand for $8 brand new so I picked up a, I replaced my novel of that as well so that was a, a win for me but uh, yeah, that was probably all there was for me to see on the on the show on the show stands. Did you sort of catch anything major other than picking up things for friends on that that sort of early access time? Um, nothing major in that early access time. I ended up grabbing mostly it was sort of some board games and some miniatures and things like that. Uh, I don't think I grabbed any. I grabbed the new Malifaux uh, sorry through the breach role playing book uh, into the scene with Sparky. So um, aside from that. Yeah, it was just a matter of a day of sort of walking through the hall, trying to get an idea of what all the different places were. Um, I did try out the Kingdom Death Monster because they had a stall here. Uh, people will either know about this and raise an eyebrow or whatever. Um, miniatures game that's going to be, I think it's $400 US retail when they finally bring wow. it out in retail. Wow, that'll make, that'll make Games Workshop blush. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the beautiful minis and so on, but still 400 US. Okay, and was it good? Was it worth? Would you pay four hundred dollars for it? Now having played it, um, I did back the Kickstarter back in the day, so I paid less than that, uh, and then they're going to have to pay shipping to Australia. So it's mm, yeah. okay. Let's see how that fulfillment goes. I guess. Yeah, uh, I also saw because I backed the uh, Vampire Dark Ages twentieth anniversary edition from uh, Onyx Path recently on Kickstarter, and they had it on the stand. I'm like, great, you got it on the stand. When are you going to fulfill my one? They're like, oh, this is some pre-production ones we did. They're still quite a while ago before we yeah, released yeah. them. So, sad face once again. You know, it, was, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't my morning. You know, yeah. waking up early, being in a line at six o'clock for three hours, not finding forty k products on the stand that I was really hoping to see. You know, but at least I got my book. I replaced my book. You know, so, and I got Force and Destiny. So, I pretty much had to come back and crash because I'm still jet lagged. Unfortunately, you've been in, you've been in the states for about a week longer than me. I have. Yeah, so. meet me up with some friends in uh, New York. Um, but yeah, so mostly it was just board games and so on. Uh, the King is Dead from Osprey is excellent, and I would hardly recommend it to everybody. Um, Mysterium from uh, Asmodee is pretty good. It's sort of a cross, a cross between Cluedo and Dixit, if that makes any sense, where one player is a ghost who has to try and lead the investigators to um, information that will solve their own murder. Uh, but yeah, there was a lot of sort of board games and things that, you know... This is a 40k podcast, so yeah, not right. a board game podcast. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, after my my little nappy poo, I came back to um, 
uh, the con again to take part in the first annual podcast Aganza. So uh, this was created by uh, the group from, I believe, the Plot Points podcast. And the idea being that they wanted several podcasts to come on board and uh, do a condensed show. So uh, they gave each podcast nine minutes and the idea was they'd all be edited together and then each podcast would put that single one-hour episode up on their feed so that regulars of their show could listen to that, hear their own favorite podcast and also get a impression of five other podcasts that may make them then feel, oh, that podcast sounds good. I'll check that one out too. So took part in that. Uh, that will be on our feed as well, either before or just after this episode, I would say. Uh, a lot of the material I discussed in that, pretty much the news section, because uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to cram an hour and a half to two hour long episode down in nine minutes without dropping a few things. So I decided to just focus on the news, and most things I spoke about is pretty much what we discussed in the news of this episode. So you probably won't hear anything new by looking at that, listening to that show, but you know, probably worthwhile listening to only because there was some good comedy in there. The episode went to a very dark place. Yeah. Yeah. And, and given this, this is the grim dark podcast. Like I, I like to feel that I actually lightened the mood when I started talking about 40k. Um, but yeah, no, it's definitely worth checking out. Lots of other good podcasts there as well. I think there'll be um, 50 minutes of new stuff from other podcasts. Exactly right, yeah. And I, I have to apologize. Under the discre- I, I talk fast normally anyway. My mother's constantly saying, James, slow down. You know, you're talking to- I didn't understand a word of that. And um, when, you, when, you've t- when you're told to cram a podcast into nine minutes and you're used to you know, rambling for an hour and a half, I spoke pretty fast. Uh, I, I don't remember taking a breath during the nine minutes. I'm sure I did because I can't hold my breath that long. But I pretty much stream of consciousness is out, you know. So I think a few times I mumbled out the wrong words. So if I get my verbiages or whatever wrong in, in that show, you know why I was cramming to get my nine minutes. And I, in the end, I think I actually came in under time as well. Okay, uh, you despite... need to learn some circular breathing probably so that you can sort of. That's right. Yeah. I am. I am from Australia, so if I go on the didgeridoo, that requires uh, circular breathing. breathing. That's yeah. it. Yeah. So I could probably I could ramble even longer. But no, that was. But it was a, a great experience to take part in that. We had dinner that night too, didn't we? Yeah, we did. We did. Remembering correctly, that's it. The, the days start to blend together pretty quickly here. All um, three of them. <laughs> so far, with two more to go. Uh, oh, then we had that brought us through this morning. So um, I didn't need to be at the show at six a.m. again. So I chose to sleep in a little bit and try and catch up on some some lost sleep and I uh, my first official engagement was actually the in-flight report at 12 o'clock so uh, I came out a bit earlier just to have a look around the uh, stand see if anything else that's new really caught my eye nothing really caught my eye I uh, went across to in-flight and uh, lined up there for a good 50 minutes before getting in uh, and you came along what about 10 minutes before the thing yeah. and you managed to get the seat directly behind me so it's not like Coming in late got you a really bad seat. I was still early, just, you know, only like a quarter of an hour earlier. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I did record the in-flight report like last uh, time we had we came to Gen Con, and I would love to cut in the segments where Christian teepeers and spoke about 40K. There were none. Mm. So I, I can't cut those in, so I'll just tell you about it. I'm not going to play the whole thing because there were a lot of background noise. There was a baby right nearby that was crying as well. Um, so... In summary, uh, Christian spoke about the fact that Fantasy Flight Games is his 20th anniversary, so good job with the guys over there. He spoke about the mega events that sort of took place over the 20 years. Development um, of the company. That's it, yeah, starting with the comic company and then moving into games after that. Uh, he sort of picked on a few key products which really promoted the success of the business in each year, and, and I was glad to see that Rogue Trader 
made it onto the list as one of the major products that was very successful in the year that it was released, and it really proved that they could do a 40k RPG because at that point they'd already doing they were already doing Dark Heresy, but the core book had been done by Black, Black Industry. Library, uh, Black Industries. That's it. So uh, this was their first full woe to go um, 40k RPG, and that was a big deal for them. A um, lot of announcements for uh, Star, Wars. Star Wars. So a new wave of X-wing figures. Uh, and a, a new, new uh, expansion for uh, Imperial Assault because Scum of Villainy was released at Gen Con and they've now got to announce another uh, one called Return to Hoth at Gen Con as well. With attendant uh, ally packs. Exactly right, yes. Uh, so some new board games as well. So Fury of Dracula, which was an old games workshop classic, they're, they're bringing back. Um, they're redoing uh, Rune Quest. Rune Bound. Rune Bound, sorry, Rune Bound. Yes. Get in trouble with that one, I'm sure. Uh, what else do we see? Oh, uh, on the Warhammer side, they are doing Warhammer Quest, but as a card, as game. a card game, not as a miniatures game like it used to be. So Warhammer Quest, geez, that came out a long time ago from Games Workshop. Um, it would have been nineties. Would have been nineties, yes. So it was, it was while I was at GW, so okay. it would have been in the in the mid to late nineties. All right. So for those of you who go back to the old, you know, quote unquote Quest series from. Games Workshop. So you had Hero Quest. Oh, and there was the um, sort of we can't get the license for Hero Quest, so we're going to do our own thing. But it was pretty excellent. Yeah, they, they did advance Hero Quest as well at one okay, point. But yeah, yeah, but um, so Warhammer Quest was, I guess, one of the very early games where it was cooperative, all the players against the game. It was. Yeah, the game had its own sort of, I guess, semi AI or not AI. It was based. It was a, a, a programmed intelligence. You know, there was a, a rule system with charts that basically told you how to progress the enemy figures and what they did and it incorporated some basic role playing elements as well you know there was a storyline there was information on how you progress between the various missions as well it was very hard as well it was was very it was a very unforgiving game Uh, and I remember when I was at GW there was uh, they'd bring out these figure packs as well where you get a new character with their own special abilities and their new miniature as such I think I still have the elf war dancer Okay. Somewhere. Yeah. I, I do recall that before. That's one of the figures, definitely, yeah. So, uh, anyway, so getting back to that, FFG have now gone and reimagined Warhammer Quest as an adventure card game. Uh, so, you know, you pick a character and you would, you know, go adventuring with it as such using this card system. So, it is uh, being demoed at the stand. I haven't had a chance to check it out yet. I certainly will try over the next couple of days to, to give that a look as well. So, uh, you know, if you are a fan of the old world, it is, it is still the old world, but it's yes. not Age of Sigma uh, in terms of the story setting. So uh, if you are a fan of that, then probably worth checking out too, because it is, it is really the one Warhammer thing we really saw from FFG at in flight. Uh, now, there was a question and answer time at the end, and, and look, Christian, all the FFG guys, especially Christian, are very good at saying, look, if we haven't announced it, we just can't talk about it. So there's not much point in me putting my hand and saying, hey guys, what about the 40k RPG lines? Because they'd just be saying to me, haven't announced it, can't talk about it. So no one really asked about the 40k lines. Someone did ask a few interesting questions. So I, there was one where someone said, uh, okay, so what do you guys think of Age of Sigma? You know, you're doing fantasy in the form of uh, one of quest and you've got a few other fantasy properties. Where do you guys sit with Age of Sigma? And uh, Christian's answer was something along the lines of, uh, look, you know, we think the old world is a great setting we are committed to the old world and, and furthering that storyline because that's still a big part of the history of fantasy. Uh, but we'll wait and see what happens with Age of Sigmar as well, which to me, 
leads me to believe that maybe they haven't yet negotiated the terms of what they're going to do with Age of Sigma. Or well, they may be working on it, but they've already paid all the artists for all the old world stuff. Yeah, I just have to wait and see, I guess. But yeah, that was, I thought that was an interesting mm-hmm. question. Um, now, you, you actually sort of, you know, went over and just had a chat with Christian after and said, yeah. oh, you know, hey, what's going on with 40K line? And, uh, what did he what, were you, say? What you said to you? Uh, he said basically, look, uh, I, you know, I've said I can't really talk about it, but, you know, if you like the 40K RPGs and 40K stuff, you're going to be happy soon. I can't say any more, but, you know, you'll be happy. Yeah, and certainly, um, so Dice Labs. So Dice Labs are the company which produced the uh, the app for Dark Heroes Second Edition. Mm. Uh, they have been slowly revealing something, an upcoming announcement on their website as well, on their blog. Uh, so this is blog.dizelabs, which is D-I-Z-E-L-A-B-S.com, uh, where they've been releasing a picture every couple of days. And the picture is now clearly the Dark Heroes Second Edition logo, including the Inquisitorial Eye in the background. Not sure what they're moving up to, but they're saying it's a big update. Um, you know, wait and see as such. So they're going to be at uh, uh, Gamescom in in Europe next week. So maybe they'll have some details to share. I'm not sure at all, but uh, just wait and see what Dice Labs are working up to. It's definitely something to do with Dark Harry's Second Edition, anyway. So uh, look, I thoroughly believe that we have still got more coming out for this line. You know, um, you know Tim is yes working on on Star Wars as well, but I think he's also uh, you know, well committed to the the 40k line too. So, and just speaking with him, he still enjoys talking about it, and he's still, you know, excited yes. to talk about That's it. That's it. I mean, Tim Tim uh, said to us basically that you know he, he's got this situation where uh, he could be working on a product for up to two years before it actually sees release, yeah, uh, or even an announcement as such. And then during that time, he can't talk about it. You know, and it's not just him; it's all the guys that, that work there. This is the way. This is the regime they work under, and it's part of their corporate marketing practice. It's just yeah. the way their company works, and so they, you know, whatever product they're working on today, they're passionate about today. You know, they might have finished a book a year ago, which is just coming out now, and all the fans are going, "This book is great," and they're going, "Yeah, yeah, I really enjoy that book, but you know, but I'm really liking what I'm working on now, and I can't tell you about that too." Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I can see that uh, there's definitely more stuff coming from these guys, and uh, so we, we're not going to see it at Gen Con, I don't think, uh, but there will be more to come anyway. Yeah. So um, I, I'm glad that Christian was able to. Uh, dangle even the, the, the tiniest carrot in front of you anyway and I mean we are only you know a small selection and we're in Australia and I have no idea how that relates to American sales but Dark Heresy 2nd Edition is selling quite well for us at least yeah I mean I've said it before when, when I go to role playing stores not just in Australia but around the world I tend to see that the shelves are well stocked with Pathfinder and 40k RPG hmm. um, certainly you know when you talk about oh, and, and, Star Wars, and, Star, and Star Wars and 5th Ed you know, so these are the things it's, it's, it's all you know D&D or FFG properties hmm. and as I said to Tim as well you've got to imagine no matter how you feel about 40k if I'm a company and I have the license of 40k and I have a license for Star Wars and I have a license for Star Wars in a year where a new Star Wars film is about to come out yeah. and a new film is going to be released every year for the next, I don't know how many years after that. Seven years ago? That's it. I would be milking the crap out of that license. I'd be taking all my best writers, I'd be jamming them into Star Wars and saying, pump out stuff and make me some money. Yeah. Um, or even just, you know, like we we can put the 40k stuff out whenever, but if we don't have the Star Wars stuff out by the time the movie comes out, then we've missed the chance, you know. That's it. Conversely, if I was Games Workshop and I've licensed my product to a company to produce games for it, and they're I, not producing games. I would have some expectations. There'd be a number of games I have to produce. You know, a number of things I have to produce each each which year to, to make, to make it work, sure. worth my while, basically. So, 
uh, I can certainly see that that there's, there's very good reasons why Star Wars is a, is a big part of FFG's commercial planning, uh, but I also do believe that we'll see more from yeah. 40k. And Fantasy Flight is the kind of game that will just, well, the kind of games company that will just take longer to release a good product. We're not saying that they're going to you know put terrible writers on or anything. We're just saying that they're going to take longer to release a good product as opposed to just rushing something out when it's half finished. So I'm not. We're not saying that it's not going to be coming. We're just going to say that they're going to take the time and focus their efforts where they need to focus their efforts first. Yeah. So, I guess speculating lot, there is a speculation thread on their forums under the Dark Heresy 2nd Edition General Discussion page. Follow the Dice Labs blog, you know, see what comes up. I'm sure there'll be some news in the not too this. Let's say this side of Christmas. Hmm. I'd expect to probably see something. At least news, yes. At least some news, that's right, yeah. So, I'm I'm hanging for that. Uh, then this afternoon we went back to the show and we went to look at a demo of Forbidden Stars yep. and uh, after about an hour of explanation they were ready to start playing and my feet were killing me Yeah. so I decided to retire back to the hotel for we a should bit. say that there was another demo table next to our demo table that got through three or four demos in the time that the demo table that we were yeah the, the guy that was demoing our table he was very enthusiastic he and, and you know, I had no problem. With it. it was a great personality, but you know he he wanted you to know you know who he was, why he was doing this, how he got into this thing, what his background is. He worked for GW. This is his board game gig profile. This is the rule, and this is why the rule is this way, and this is how this rule relates back to X Y K rule, yeah, or X Y Z old board game that he really loves as such, you know. So, um, yeah, the, the the game itself to me looked really interesting I just I mm. didn't get a chance to play you did stick around I did stick around you got to see some play for one round yeah they were doing sort of short short I suppose um, play through well just like run through a single round give you an idea of the rules give you a taste of the game and then you know you can take it from there right. and first impressions based on what you saw um, I enjoyed it I definitely played through a full game at some point and uh, it's just sort of a matter of getting people together at the right time a group of four people or two to four people I guess and sort of getting that together which can be a bit of a problem because most of the times we get people together are generally either like two or three people or six or seven people yes so not so good for uh, for board gaming that's right yeah. Yeah. I will point out by the way before we went to see this this we did go and uh, try to get into a, uh, a run of Dark Heresy that Tim was running mm. uh, you know as it was with Gen Con there's always people that don't show up uh, so we went and got some generic tickets put our names on the list Unfortunately, uh, there was only one seat left over and two of us. So we opted to bow out uh, and go and do some demos. And, and we had a chat with Tim and said, maybe we can catch up after the innies and mm-hmm. do some gaming then or make some other plans during the weekend. So later on the day, get to go to the innies. Uh, and the innies, as you know, is a award ceremony run by EM World to cover you know, products produced in the last year. Hopefully you voted for the Grimdark Hopefully podcast. you voted for the Grimdark Post, that's right. Not that it mattered because we didn't win. Uh, so I want to say a big congratulations first off to the two podcasts that did. So the Silver Any went to the Miskatonic University podcast, which is another podcast from the D20 Radio Network. So congratulations to the guys over there. And the Golden he went to Ken and Robin talk about stuff again. So second year in a row, they have nailed the third, isn't it? So no, second year in a row. Oh, okay. th- third gold, third gold they've, they've received, but the second year in a row. Okay. Um, so you know their podcast is really one of the staples, I think, of this of this community. So they're both both writers and developers for different game systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know they, they they're clearly doy- they're... doyens of this community as such. Yeah. So um, you know I think the moment that 
you saw that they were up in the nominations list. You said, so you have to come second now. You're behind uh, Ken Robbins. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so congratulations to those guys. Really great shows. And it was such a privilege to be included among those uh, th- those great shows. But uh, always always a bribe. It's never a bribe for us show, unfortunately. But uh, we were lucky enough to have Tim Huckabee from Fantasy Fight join us as well for the Ennies. And um, once we left and discussed, I mean, stepped out the door because we were... Was, <laughs> were Graciously defeated, and uh, you know Tim hadn't eaten dinner, and we wanted to catch up yeah, with him. Exactly and... right. Yeah, the, the Ennies can go for quite some time, so uh, we, we stepped out to so Tim get some dinner, have a couple of drinks, uh, and just talk shop, I guess you know. Yeah. So talk about his involvement in in Star Wars, talk about what we loved about uh, about Forty K. I decided to share with Tim. So I, I'm going to throw this out there. This is this thing that um, Mike and I've been discussing. There is a there is a belief among some fans. That also here's what we know. First off, we know observationally that when a company outside of Games Workshop has to produce a new chapter, there appear to be certain rules that those chapters have to follow. So the examples we can look at here are things like the Blood Ravens, Storm Wardens, Red Scorpions, for example. Um, these chapters have a few key things that they all follow. One is that, well, the main one is that they the founding chapter is never stated. Yeah, it's always unknown or secret or whatever. It never tells that you who they are based from. Uh, and the community has come to this belief that uh, these chapters are actually formed from gene seed, genetic seed taken from loyalist members of legions that turned traitor during the Horus Heresy. Uh, have, you, have you heard this before? Something, is, I think is, we've sort of at least heard the discussion. Right, you had, yeah. But you hadn't heard it pre, pre when we discussed it in the past? Um you may I've mentioned it with me beforehand, but okay. I think I I may I've come across it I think maybe on some forums or something, but yeah, not in... and this is mainly where it's come from is, is various forums, and, and from what I understand, I haven't read the thirty k material. Mike has. Mike says there's more and more little hints in the thirty k material that make this seem to be the, um, the 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 obvious answer as such, without without ever actually confirming it. And know, if we're so. wrong, it's entirely Mike's fault. Exactly right. Yeah, he's not here. He can't defend himself. So I'll, I'll happily throw him under a bus. Yeah. Uh, and he doesn't listen to he doesn't listen to episodes anyway, so he will never hear this anyway. So also, could, he kicks puppies. That's right. What a jerk! That's <laughs> I know. That's right. um, anyway, uh, so his belief was, for example, that um, the Blood Ravens are based on the Thousand Sun Genetic Seed. You know, this comes back to their their major emphasis on psychers. Uh, I think this is prognostication. A, yeah, I think this is a relatively commonly held belief by a lot of the fans uh, on the. Uh, uh, Stormwarden side from Deathwatch my belief is they come from the Night Lords and without Mike here I won't start running off the reasons why because I think that Mike would do it a lot more justice but uh, yeah we decided to share with Tim hey this is our theory of course you know, Tim being Tim going nothing but uh, yeah that was, it was good to sort of air that as like this is what we think you know we've, we've been monitoring this stuff and this is what we believe so uh, just a little interesting fan theory that has sort of cropped up there but um, yeah, did we come up with anything else tailing about about forty k? No, and we just sort of discussed you know life stuff and caught up with people and chatted around. Hey, how's things happening? You know, yeah, that's it. All right. So tomorrow morning, being Saturday morning, there is actually an official Dark Heresy Second Edition breakfast. Yes. Uh, that both Matt and myself will be at. Uh, what we're hoping to do. Oh, that's right. I will say that we had spoken with Tim about maybe doing a game later on after the show because of the fact we couldn't get into the the game during the day. However, um, I sort of thought, oh, well, it's Tim and the two of us. So it's like, well, you can run a game for two people, but um, it's a bit hard to do on the fly. So let's 
all get together at the breakfast tomorrow and we'll say to people at the breakfast, hey, do we have later on tonight? No. Let's go play Dark Heresy with Tim Huckleby running it. And it's funny, I said to, I said to Tim the other day, um, I'd happily run something if you, if you want to play. It's like, you know what? I really can't play other people running games that I've written the system for. Yeah. Because I just sit there constantly going, oh, you're doing it wrong. It hurts when I see you break my game like that. So, uh, yeah, so t- if it's going to happen, Tim's got to run it. But uh, right. yeah, we'll see if we can wrangle a few people at the breakfast tomorrow who are willing to, uh, uh, to, to come out tomorrow evening at some point and, uh, and play some Dark Heresy with us. Um, I will try and get back into the, the game as well during the day if there are spots there too. I don't know if Tim plans to run something the same or different, but he said he, said he has got something lined up he could do, which may or may not involve Gene Steelers, uh, which aren't in the module that he's running so maybe there is a. Uh, he's got I think a he just thing. wants to kill us all with gene stealers. That's it. I mean, and who wouldn't? You know, it's, <laughs> if you've got gene stealers, what's the point of having gene stealers if you don't use them? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, you but, open the door. Yeah. <laughs> Twenty gene stealers. Well, all right, let's go drinking. Yeah, roll initiative. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll try and get into the games, and, and I think maybe if I get the chance in the afternoon, I might even try and get into one of the uh, the Star Wars games. Have you got anything you're trying to really do for the rest of the con? Uh, it's meetings for me. Meetings. Oh, Saturday fa- and Sunday. Fantastic. Meetings. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you pretty much lost your opportunity to play a, a game at the con, yeah, shy, of, shy of if we get something going tomorrow night with him, yeah. maybe. But, uh, yeah, so you're 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 under the works part of your trip now. I was working before. I was demoing or well, having games demoed to me, so oh, I would yes. have an idea of it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so that's really right with Gen Con. I mean, uh, maybe as I record later parts of the show, it will be further down the track, and I can talk more about interesting events. Oh, here's what I want to say. When we had dinner tonight, we went to TGI Fridays at the, in our hotel, uh, and for the first time, somebody recognised me and said, "Hey, Grimdark Podcast!" Uh, and I was like, "So shout out to that person." Yeah, so, uh, Wendy, I believe her name was. Yeah, so that was uh, that was really great to finally, you know, I, I was, we went to the podcast in Ganza. We were talking with the people there. Like one guy says, "Like, hey, for the first time, somebody asked for a selfie with me earlier." So um yeah so i mean we've got fans in various places in the world it was nice to actually know that there's some one of them came along to to uh the con and actually recognized one of us as well so um mike may be stoked i'm not sure i mean mike sees but mike just looks like an older version of harry potter you know, it, it, you know, <laughs> like, you know the, um who the studio that produced harry potter could have saved money by you know, on all the digital effects to make Dan Rakel looked all about just hiring Mike to play old Harry Potter. Mm. Um, just draw a little scurries for it and he'd be done. You know, so once again, he's not going to listen to the show. He's not going to get upset. Although I, I say this sort of stuff to his face as well all the time too. But uh, yeah, no, I, I don't look like Harry Potter. I'm a bit hard, a bit hard to spot, so it was good to be recognised. But yeah, that's it. Anyway, that's our plan for the rest of the con. Um, I will work on getting this episode completed and edited up. And by the time you know, you're hearing this, there is more show to come. But yeah. uh, in case we don't hear from Matt again, I want to say thank you, Matt, for coming on the show and, no and enjoy the rest of your Gen Con and I'm sure that we will hear from you in the future when some product or another gets released by FFG that we may need to play test yes. we'll do another four hour marathon that drives our listeners away we maybe, can perhaps split off maybe we'll split it up this time I'm not sure you know, maybe, yeah, maybe that's going to be yeah. better and, uh, oh hey what I will point out as well just as a side note this is probably going to go on our news section or even earlier than that we are back to doing some of our Dark Heresy Second Edition uh, Roll20 game we got a new, new episode up uh, about a week ago I've got the other half of the same episode to edit and get up uh, probably while I'm traveling as well. And I'll be doing some more of that when we get back from um, North America too. So if you watch our YouTube channel, you might already know. But if not, then go over there and check it out and you should see some more um, action in, in Dark Heresy. Some real sort of, uh, uh, I'll just say some, some dangerous hipster action. 
dangerous hipster. Yeah, so yeah, so uh, I'll leave you to uh, listen to the or, or watch the uh, the show to, to pick up on me on that. Anyway, I will thank Mac now and move on to the next part of the show. All supplicants report to the administrator for career assignment. Okay, so through the magic of radio, it's actually now several days later. Uh, it's actually the Thursday following Gen Con. Uh, so we didn't get a chance to actually catch up with other people during the show. Uh, so I do thank Matt for being involved in the show before, but unfortunately I couldn't sort of wrangle anyone because in the days following when we recorded the last segment, I actually did my voice while uh, playing some uh, FFG games. So I was in no position to record more of the show. And then when I actually flew out of Indianapolis, the Transport Safety Administration decided to check my luggage for contraband, and in the process they broke my microphone. So I've been able to actually fix it up now, uh, but you've just got me for the rest of the show, unfortunately, so hopefully you still enjoy what we have to say. I will talk more about Gen Con later on in the show, but I'll move on to the actual general show topics from now anyway. So normally at this point in the show, we do a, a career discussion, so we pick one of the various uh, careers or specialties from the role-playing games, and we talk about that in depth. And because we're back to Rogue Trader tonight, I'm actually talking about the Croup Mercenary. So what is the role of the Croup Mercenary in Rogue Trader? Uh, they're basically a, a Xenos Mercenary that is willing to join the crew. I mean, that in itself presents a number of problems for some groups in, in Rogue Trader or in the Imperium in general. As you know, generally Xenos are not very well regarded by the Imperium, although you can buy the sanctioned Xenos trait. There is still the social stigma attached with playing a, a Xenos character. We covered this a bit before in our last road trip episode where we discovered the Orc Freebooter. Uh, but the uh, Croup Mercenary does make an excellent combat character. So if you've already got an Arch Militant and you want to round out the combat skills of your group or you don't have an Arch Militant and you want it to play a slightly different combat character, I think the Croup Mercenary is, is quite adept at uh, filling that role. Uh, they've also got a couple of unique abilities, I guess, particular to their style. So they're very good trackers uh, in general. And also they have the ability to sort of quickly adapt to new situations so new technologies interacting with new races you know this is all part of the fluff that, that sits around the crew themselves if you're not familiar with crew in general they're a rather primitive race that comes from the same area of space as the tau and one of their sort of unique physiological traits is that they develop by eating the flesh of other sentient creatures that basically their dna has gaps in it and by consuming the flesh of these creatures they begin to fill in the holes in their DNA. So particular sort of uh, kindred or, or groups of, uh, uh, of Crute, if they are exposed to a particular race or, or type of creature uh, for a long term, that tends to, or through the use of their shapers' abilities, that tends to actually modify that group somewhat so that they take on dominant traits of the, the creature or creatures that they, they regularly consume. So there are a number of different Crute kindred that you can actually play in the game as well. When it comes to actually building the character, they do use a different creation system than the rest of the Road Trader characters. They don't use the career path. Instead, they have some key things you choose to do with their actual kindred background and their specialty. Uh, Characteristic-wise, I think that probably th they are focused mainly on, on the combat side. So I'd be saying uh, weapon skill and ballistic skill. They, they do get weapon skill as a slightly higher trait. They start at 30 as opposed to 25 on ballistic skill. Uh, that being said, most of the sort of imagery I see of Crute have them wielding the, the tower weapons, for example, the, the range weapons. So I guess it really comes down to what your preference is between melee or range combat, but the crew could easily fill either role. Agility is definitely a must for crew. Uh, they are sort of avian in appearance, and uh, they have the ability to sort of move and contort in unusual ways. They can sort of spring up and leap long distances or 
roll agilely along the ground. So I think that uh, agility is probably a, a key ability for them. And finally, probably perception would be the other one I'd really go for. I mean, a lot of the sort of fluff works around them having uh, very good senses as such. They can buy a natural perception later on in their career development path. So I think that perception is probably a, a one that's worth going for as well. In terms of other attributes, it really comes down to what sort of flavor you want your crew to have, whether you want to be the smart crude or the, the friendly crude as such. But I think probably those four are the ones I'd be focusing on for crude in general. Skills-wise, uh, acrobatics probably really fits in with that style of fast movement that the crew have. Uh, awareness fits that perception base. Skills like uh, climb or swim, which have been rounded down in other sort of systems into athletics individually for the crew, I think would apply. I think this is probably the first character discussion we've had in any of these games since we've recommended swim as a skill. Uh, if you are playing to play a crew shaper down the path, then command is worthwhile. Uh, contortionist, once again, for that sort of acrobatic style. Dodge also runs off agility, quite a good one. The book does have Forbidden Law Xenos, so I don't know, as, as a GM, I probably wouldn't ask a person playing a crew to roll Forbidden Law Xenos to know about their own race. Uh, but you know, maybe it's going off the fact that crew as a traveling race probably get more exposure to other races than humans would, uh, possibly a greater chance of positive interactions rather than just outright violence. So I'd say that, uh, yeah, I'd be using Forbidden Law Xenos to represent what they know of other races, not just of themselves. Although it's not really on the list, I'd say Medicaid is worth considering for recruit. Main reason being is that if you've got someone else in your group who is medically skilled, they upgrade the difficulty of the check by 10, or basically make it one step harder when working on recruit due to the alien physiology. So if you wanted to work on yourself, or if you're a shaper and you have some minions as well and wanted to work on them... I'd suggest that uh, taking Medicaid would be good. And as a GM, once again, I wouldn't actually penalize a, uh, a crew player for trying to do Medicaid on themselves or on, on other crew. You know, I'd say that, that basically fits in with their actual skill set. Uh, survival is another skill I think would work very well with the crew. They are from a sort of a jungle-like planet, and they are very good at adapting to new environments. Tech use, I've put down, once again, they are primitive, but all the fluff seems to indicate that they have a very easy time of picking up technology and coming to understand it. So I'd consider tech use. Tracking, going back to that sort of style, the crew being very good at tracking and, and uh, following things. And like the York, probably wrangling as well. There are a number of different animals or creatures that the crew have appeared on throughout the fluff. And I think the wrangling would probably be a good skill to take there as well. I mean, Rogue Trader, as normal, has a much, much larger skill list than some of the more recent game settings. So you've got to be a bit more diverse in what you can actually do. But I think those are probably the skills I'd be looking at with a crew character. Uh, onto the talent side, um, now I put down things like uh, Berserk Charge, possibly even Frenzy, because they are quite feral in nature. This is one of the sort of defining features of the crew. So I think that, that sort of style of feral combat would actually fit them quite well. Going on to the... The tracking side, uh, Blood Tracker might be a good uh, talent to take for your group. Uh, basically, whenever you bring in a, a quote-unquote bounty, you actually improve, uh, you add 100 objective points. I think military or maybe criminal uh, as well, it actually applies to for, for Blood Tracker. Uh, Combat Master means that they, your opponents get no benefit from outnumbering you, which I think would work well with the sort of agile nature of the crew. Disturbing Voice, I thought might be a good one to take because at the end of the day, they are an alien creature and I could see how the plus 10 to intimidate and interrogation would fit well with the sort of 
the alien vocal cords they might have in their, their beaked face as well. Although you do take a minus 10 fellowship on top of whatever else you might get for being an unsanctioned Xenos. Or sanctioned Xenos for the matter. Uh, exotic weapon training, I think, for the various weapons that the crew get access to, like the uh, the tower rifles. Or realistically speaking, they could have come across any exotic weapons or alien weapons throughout their travels as well. So I think that's probably a good move for a crew to take some different weapons, makes them a bit more diverse than the rest of the group. Uh, hard bargain. Now, this is the thing. Crew mercenaries are just that. They're mercenaries. There are actually crew-specific talents you can get, which actually allow you to use the group's profit factor rather than your willpower in order to test against things like fear. Effectively, I'm paying. I'm being paid so much, I'm going to fight through this. Uh, and I think that's part of the way that the crew work. They are a mercenary race in this case. You know, they are working for the group for a reason. And the hard bargain talent allows you to add plus one to the group's profit factor whenever you complete an endeavor. So good for the whole group. And, you know, maybe fits the style of the, 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 the crew there, sort of, you know, pointing out the various ways that the rest of the group might benefit from the mission itself. Uh, hard target is one I would think fits well with the agile nature of the crew. So that gives you a, well, gives you enemies a minus 20 or ballistic skill test whenever you're charging or running, or in the case of a, uh, a crew leaping and diving. Uh, heightened senses uh, gives you plus 10 to any given sense, so that would fit in with the sort of high perception thing. I'd put down Jaded because I think that the crew are travelled and worldly enough to not be so affected by the horrors that it may affect a, a less initiated member of the Imperium, for example. Uh, Leap Up, once again, goes off that sort of agile ability. You can stand up as a free action. Uh, Lightning Reflexes uh, will sort of almost ensure you go first in combat. It lets you add your twice your agility bonus for initiative rather than just once. Uh, rapid reaction allows you to uh, test in order to negate surprise and, and sprint gives you a much faster combat movement speed so i really try to focus here on on talents that f- really exemplify the crew's agile nature um, you know, their, their perceptive abilities as well so but there's lots of other talents there you might consider especially if you go further down the berserk charge talent tree as well or down the frenzy talent tree but uh, i think they're probably the main ones i thought would sort of fit all crew when it comes to alternate careers there's only one alternate career in the book so far which is really mapped out for the crew and that is the crew shaper so crew shapers are sort of a a, a shamanistic crew who becomes a leader of other crew by way of their special abilities to affect the way the crew absorb the, the dna of their enemies affect all their enemies their, the, the dna of their food uh so if you do want to sort of play that more intellectual social and, and the, the character that's got lots of followers and a crew shaper might be the way to go. Uh, as I said, things like command will benefit that. Uh, you do get the shamanistic ability as when you when you take the crew shaper ultimate career, so you don't need to worry about buying that up front. Uh, but yeah, it's it's really the only way you're going to develop your crew differently other than trying to find one of the human alternate careers that you can somehow mash into the crew, which I don't think would work very well. When it comes to ship roles, as we said with the last Rogue Trader show, there are no ship roles actually assigned to Xenos races. So, for example, the Yorks had none at all. Uh, that being said, I can see reasons why you know, these Xenos races may fit into certain ship roles. I didn't see a lot for the crew, despite being a combat character. I didn't really think it was worthwhile putting them into any of the sort of Master at Arms roles, for example, because... Most of the crew that I've seen in the fluff, except for the shapers, are more followers than they are leaders. And I think that the shapers themselves 
uh, more of a shamanistic leader rather than a, a combat leader. With that being said, the two I did pick out that might be good for the crew, very similar to the orc, were the twist catcher, uh, going off that sort of tracker hunter style, you know, you can go into the, the dark holds of the ship and bring out the mutants that you might need to round out your crew. And lastly, of course, the ship steward, because who doesn't want a, uh, a race known for cannibalizing the dead uh, as uh, the, the cook on your ship? You might have a few interesting stories to tell to you down that path, but yeah, it's more of a more of a joke than anything else. Now, if you are playing a crew, a bit of advice for, for how to get the most out of the character. You really want to, especially if you're doing bringing the character at the start of the game, talk with the other players about why there is a crew on their crew. You know, what is in it for you? What's in it for them? How do they deal with the fact that you're, having your character in the group is going to limit certain social actions they can get into with members of the Imperium, basically, especially if they want to go to things like Ministorum uh, temples or, or churches as such. You know, the, the, the crew would be very unwelcome there. So how did the group meet your character? And how did you come to work for them? Why are you no longer traveling with other crew? Uh, you know what? What basically is your reason for being here? That's a key one to think about. Secondly, it's really worth talking with the group about how they feel about playing with the themes that a crew brings to the table. At the end of the day, crew tend to go about a battlefield after a, a victory and consume some of the bodies of the dead. And some players may find this style of implied cannibalism, even though the crew may be eating a different race like a human or orc or some such, or even, even a creature. Um, some people may find that sort of theme to be confronting. And, and therefore, you might need to sort of discuss that with your GM and players. And you can either sort of hand wave that out of the way as we don't describe that. We just assume it happens and everybody just moves on with it. Or you may say that we'll just choose to omit that part of the, the crew's background from our game. Or the group may be fine with it. And, you know, you sort of describe a rather macabre scene at the end of a combat where your character goes and uh, takes their fill. And the last thing I want to say is, remember that you are going to be playing an alien here. You know, Kroot are not humans. They have a very different mindset. In many ways, a very primitive mindset. Um, I'd say a very mercenary mindset as such, at least the way they're represented in the Rogue Trader book. So, you know, sort of show up your character as being quite different from humans, you know. Be perplexed by what other people might seem to be might feel to be rather complex or sort of rather simple things as such, you know. So, yeah, someone pulls out some miscellaneous item and starts to use it. Suddenly have your character be amazed by it as such and, and uh, react to it like it's some sort of unusual thing. You know, conversely, when the group comes across some, not necessarily a horror, but something very unusual, have your character treat it like it's totally blasé, like it may be something they've seen or heard about before from their, from their shaper or their kindred as such. Just ways to try and show that you're not just another character, just another human in the group. You are quite different and something of an outsider. So think of ways that you can try and play up those differences as such. So anyway, that's the crew. Uh, it's not so much to talk about when it's just one person talking, so hopefully the rest of the show doesn't truncate so badly. Uh, but I'll move on to the next part and we'll, we'll keep going. Attention, loyal servants of the Imperium. Stand by to receive orders. Okay, for today's Rogue Trader plot talk, I'm actually using one that I've actually used in a game previously. We used this in the Unbound, and last weekend at Gen Con, actually, uh, when I was chatting with Tim Huckleberry, I even discussed this particular plot with him, and he quite liked it, so I thought I'm going to put this in as a plot point for the show. So here we go. With your ship in port, the crew has been contacted by a member of the Auto Famulus. 
As a part of a standard record-keeping procedure, the auto is seeking a genetic sample from the Lord Captain to compare against ancient records held on Terra to ensure the bloodline associated with the warrant of trade is still strong. Does the crew have any reason to believe their heritage is not legitimate? And what are they prepared to do to ensure the continuation of their line? So this is sort of based on the concepts of the different challenges your group may face from time to time. There's actually a small chart in the book, and this is one extra one we came up with. The concept that the genetic purity of the Lord Captain may be called into question. And so you know, even if, even if the players are 100% certain that there is no issue with their uh, legitimacy of the warrant of trade, uh, then you could still create some paranoia that uh, who would have triggered this? Maybe there is some plan to falsify the information or some other methodology to try and take over the warrant, maybe from a lesser uh, sibling or, uh, or, or cousin as such that wants to control the line. There's also what we did in our game, which is uh, shortly after the, uh, the auto famulus turned up to request the sample, the sister that actually came to the group turned up dead. And so straight away, uh, the focus of the law turned to the crew and the expectation that they must have killed her to try and hide their secret, even though the group had nothing to do with it. So just a couple of things you can try and do there with your road trader crew to throw in an unusual sort of thing in port, you know. You can make it so they can't leave until they settle this matter as such, or in the case of the group we ran with, actually, there was some illegitimacy in their line as well. So uh, they kept on trying to come up with reasons to send the sister away. So every time she'd turn up again saying, okay, have you got time now to, to give us a sample as such? And it quickly became a, a recurring story as such the group was constantly trying to avoid. But just as one thought for a, a plot hook you might like to include in your game. I'll keep moving. Revere the Omnisia, for it is the source of all power. For this episode's war gear, I've decided to pick an item that I think most rogue traders covet, or if they don't, they should, and that is the digi weapon. So, what actually are digi weapons? I mean, from the rules point of view, they are basically a miniaturized version of a standard energy range weapon. So, Laz, Melter, Flame, I think actually Needler as well, you can do a Needler too. Uh, and, and they take the form of basically a piece of jewellery, usually a ring. Uh, so they have a single-shot version of the effectively the full-size weapon incorporated into a piece of jewellery and easily concealed on the road trader's person. They are extremely rare. Uh, they're basically... The, the story of these objects coming through 40K is they were created by a race called the Jacero. If you're not familiar with the Jacero, the Jacero are a sort of unusual orange-furred ape-like race that has no discernible language skills, no discernible technology, and they, for all intents and purposes, are not much more than primitive animals. Yet, when technology is placed in front of them, they instantly start pulling it apart and start doing amazing things with it. And the most common thing they'll do with technology is they will rapidly miniaturize it. So they'll take something the size of a full-size melter pistol, for example, or inferno gun, inferno pistol, sorry, and miniaturize it down to the size of a ring, basically. No one knows how they do it. I actually quite like the way they work in the uh, the tabletop game where each turn you roll a D6 to see what your Jacero does. And I think one of the results is they literally just take your gun and make it look nicer. But digital weapons themselves are... They've been in Rogue Trader... So they've been in the, the 40k universe since the original Rogue Trader book. You know, that the Jacero have been around for a long, long time. And these weapons, as I say, being extremely rare, are quite sought after by the sort of likes you would have as rogue traders, you know, these these high individuals who have... There's very little they can't obtain except for those things which are extremely hard to come by, extremely expensive, and at the end of the day, extremely dangerous as well. And once you've got a digital weapon, you can do a lot with it. I mean, it'll be rarely be taken by any sort of weapons check because it looks just like a regular ring. 
Uh, and so, so there's, there's a very clear use for a digital weapon for the rogue trader particularly. I guess any other member of the group could use it, but I think that it's a sort of item that would be attached to the station of the rogue trader. So well worth considering picking up for your rogue trader in your own game. Uh, got a lot of uses, and, and they're really quite powerful. The idea of doing like 2D10 plus 4 with the, the Digi Melter from something the size of a ring, even if it's only one shot, is really incredible. And they can be used in melee as though they were pistols. Anyway, let's move on. My lord, the information you requested is now available for your review. Okay, so for today's review, I'm covering Lure of the Expanse, which is the first adventure module for Rogue Trader. Uh, I've actually run this one almost all of the way through. I had a group that was playing for this one, and we got to most of the way through Chapter 3, then unfortunately the group sort of fell apart, but I can speak to most of the pitfalls that you might encounter running this particular uh, series of modules. Uh, Lure of the Expanse does stand alone, so it's not part of a, a three-part module like with the other ones you've seen in Dark Heresy and Rogue Trader, uh, but like most of the sort of stories, is broken into three separate parts or three chapters, and, and I'll go through those now. So chapter one is Eye of the Needle, and for the most part, it starts off set on the planet of Footfall, uh, or not so much planet, but station. So Footfall is at the far side of the uh, Coronas Passage into the Coronas Expanse, so you've got um, the port at one side, you go through the passage, you end up at, at Footfall. So between this and uh, into the storm, you've got a pretty good sort of primer on the uh, the two major part ports either side of the uh, the Coronas Passage. Uh, so the crew has come to Footfall because there is rumours of an auction to take place where the prize of the auction is a, a foretelling by a group of witches that will lead to a place of great wealth. So certainly not within keeping to the regular sort of expectations of the Imperium, but of course rogue traders... They put the rogue in there and they are willing to just do things like deal with witches in order to find great uh, great wealth. So the first part of the module is basically a, a whole uh, explanation of, of footfall, who is who, what the various locations are. You know, you could really use this not only as a jumping point for this adventure, but for a jump off point for future adventures. Lots of NPCs and factions there that you can look into. And eventually the group are going to find themselves invited along to a dinner of sorts. This sort of social gathering is used to uh, get the group invited along to the auction. They know, that they, need, they, know they need to basically uh, demonstrate themselves well at this dinner in order to actually receive the invitation. So the dinner itself is a good chance for your characters to get quite sociable. There are some interesting things here, some interesting uh, side encounters. There's a nice little chart of the various unusual and dangerous foods that get served at the dinner so the players can have a bit of fun with challenging their characters' culinary expectations and also their own uh, their own imaginations when it comes to just how horrible this food could possibly be. Uh, but the overall outcome of the of the dinner is to basically get the characters invited to the auction. There's really not many sort of pitfalls here. It shouldn't take much for the players to just, unless they literally sit at the side of the room and do nothing. You know, they should be in some way be able to distinguish themselves enough to actually receive an invite. So provided they're actually trying to play the adventure, it should be easy to keep playing it. Uh, the next part itself is the auction, and this is where the players are basically go along to uh, bid on being one of the many individuals who gets to go and see the witches foretelling. So it won't just be a single winner here, it will be a number of winners. The idea being that each group that comes up is allowed to offer one thing uh, in exchange for being invited to the 
the auction. Sorry, to the foretelling itself. Now, the, it's not like a classical auction where the highest value item gets through. Basically, when they offer the one thing, either the uh, the controller will accept it, or the auctioneer will accept it, or they will reject it. And if they reject it, that's it. You're out. You're not going to get a uh, another opportunity to bid on this particular auction. But if the auctioneer likes what they put up, then they'll get invited to the actual foretelling as well. This part here is going to require a lot of work by the GM, probably up front, to think about what things the players may actually be able to offer, because there's no hard and fast rules in the book here. What you'll see is it'll go through a number of the different things offered by NPCs, and it'll tell you what they offer and what gets rejected, and what they offer and what gets accepted. So if the players watch for a while, they should be able to work out the sort of caliber of things that will be accepted. And, and quite, some of the things are quite esoteric. You know, basic offers of wealth or, or just items as such won't cut it here. They need to think of more unusual things that would appeal to the uh, the auctioneer and his faction, basically. Uh, I guess the potential fall of the rails here would be the group just tries to go outright for that, uh, you know, offer you great wealth or something, or something that, you know, it would appear to be something that the... Uh, the auctioneer would reject. Now, as a GM, you could probably say for some odd reason he accepts your offer when he knocked back the same offer from a previous group, you know, it's sort of implying there is a degree of fate at work here. Or you may want to come up with a story of how the group has to try and... They, they, they don't get an invitation to the foretelling, but they have to try and make some arrangements post the auction to maybe take out one of the people that did win and take their spot or somehow sneak in and observe the foretelling in such a way they're not actually caught. So even if they do have problems in the auction, you could still give them an opportunity to, to take part in the next part of their module. Uh, then you have the foretelling where they actually meet the witches, and this can be this scene can be as weird or as strange as you want to do it. I mean, we're talking about effectively warp sorcery here in order to determine the location of great wealth, and they're basically going to be telling the group the location of something called the Dread Pearl, which everyone is sure must be some form of great wealth, basically. So the the group sees this foretelling, and uh, they now have a location to go to. And the next part of the book basically explains all of the various individuals who got to go to the foretelling. So it gives you a background on who they are, what their ships are, what their crew is like. And it doesn't say necessarily, you know, this group will be antagonistic to the player characters. It just gives them as example characters, and the GM can decide which individuals in this particular group you want to be antagonistic to the players which individuals you want to try and work with the players because in the, the day that everyone here in this group is competing for the same final prize but people may work differently to actually achieve that certainly when i ran the game i made sure that i'd established in an earlier module that one of these particular guys was a, a rival of the uh, the player characters group so that actually added some additional I guess, personal stake in dealing with these various potential allies and rivals. Uh, but certainly you could you know, use these people however you want. And I quite like that about this module, the fact that it's not a simply, here is a group of people, here, these people are bad, these people are good. It says, here's a group of people, you decide how you want them to interact with the player characters and with each other. Because keep in mind, they're not just competing with the player characters to get to the end of the module, they're competing with each other as well. So you could easily find that by the time they catch up with the player characters down the track, Two or three of them have been taken out without any action on the player character's part. You know, it's up to you as a GM how you want to handle that. So, next step is the players leave footfall, and there is a brief encounter with Eldar ships tended to actually be like a space encounter before they leave, and this is to basically introduce the fact that the Eldar are intended to be antagonists in this particular module. So, what the players don't know at this point in time is that 
the Dread Pearl is actually an Eldar maiden world. And the Eldar are very keen to not have humanity trouncing over their maiden world, so they attempt to stop the groups before they can leave. It's just an initial encounter, basically. It's not going to... It shouldn't be too hard. And you can have other other ships get involved as well, or any other ships arrive from, from Footfall too, so the player character should not get overwhelmed. It's more of a scene designed to introduce the fact that the Eldar are here, and they are somehow involved in this. So what follows is a number of optional vignette encounters as the player characters head to uh, head to uh, the Dread Pearl, or what they think is the Dread Pearl. I quite like some of these encounters. I actually had used one of them after I read it before in an earlier module. Like, I quite like this encounter where the group finds an ancient Mechanicus probe, which may have some sort of unusual tech about it. So when I, I ran it in my game, I decided the probe had some form of artificial intelligence, which is really a no-no in the 40k universe for machines to be thinking. And that gave the player characters a sort of moral quandary of this thing has a lot of valuable information, but it's also tech heresy. Um, so, you know, there are various different optional encounters you may choose to have the group be involved in, various opportunities for profit, and various opportunities to sort of slow the group down so that if you decide to later on say, well, you know, if you had been here sooner, this might have happened, that's in there as well. Uh, the only encounter that is required or mandatory is a meeting with the Strixus. So if the group haven't encountered the Strixus before, this is a good opportunity for them to do so. If they've seen them before, they'll probably be more familiar, but here's a good chance to have them deal with an alien race, hopefully in a social and mercantile way. This is what the Strixus are built to be. They're not supposed to be just another group that your player characters shoot. They're more than willing to do trade with the road traders, although the way the Strixus trade may throw some players off. You know, once again, material wealth has very little value to them. They might be more in, in they may be interested in more esoteric concepts as well, or different things, you know, a, a nice looking hat, you know, or a weapon or something else that uh, even things like charms, for example, if your player characters have those, they might be bargainable items with the Strixus. Uh, but after these dealings, they basically find their way to the planet of Kapasai 12, which at first they believe is supposed to be the Dread Pearl, but it turns out not to be. After some exploration on the planet, they find an Eldar temple where the Eldar are currently going through some sort of ritual to try and maybe destroy the temple or in some way obscure the fact that the temple itself forms part of an, a star map, basically. So the player characters basically will have a conflict here with, for the first time with Eldar, and they're trying to save the map so they can actually proceed to the next part of the um, the module. And that's the end of Chapter 1. So it's quite a long one. This one took us, when I ran it, probably about three to four, probably about, I think four sessions, good sort of like two or three hours, three or four hours each to get through. So you know, the first part is actually very long. That being said, Chapter 2 it <laughs> took us a lot longer. So Chapter 2 is The Heathen Trail. And so basically the player characters have worked out that the first planet they've come to, that the witches have sent them to, is not the location of this great wealth. It is, in fact, the starting point of a star map to determine where the Dread Pearl actually is. And there are five locations that are set up as other locations where there may be more parts of the star map, and the group can go to them in any order. And the GM may decide that I only need them to do two of them, or they may decide I need them to do all of them. You know, you can decide as a GM how you want the player characters to go through this, whether they do some or all, it's up to you. So we actually did all in my game, and they were all pretty much, each one of these was at least a game session on its own. So 
you've got Zaith, which is a uh, a world beset by war as the sort of giant moving cities, or they call them land ships, are effectively at war with each other. So the player characters are trying to find their way to the the nexus or the part of the star map while also continuing with the fact that there is war going on around them and the two factions or two of the factions may try and draw them to one side or the other. And of course, you know, where the actual nexus is, the player carries reach just as two of these gigantic land ships are going to war. So you sort of set this whole, uh, I, I, I guess, conflict and, and time resolution mechanic as well. One thing I found here was when I played this with our own group, the first in the group wanted to do once they had found the nexus was destroy the Nexus so that other NPCs couldn't actually make use of it. So this one, I mean, I let them do it. Uh, I sort of thought, like, it's going to be a problem if they destroy... If they get to everyone first and they destroy them all, then it's really no reason why the NPCs should catch up to the group later on. So, yeah, you've got to decide if they're going to let them destroy it. Do you also then have it when they get to another planet? They discover that the NPCs there have arrived first and already destroyed the star map that's there but that's okay because they didn't need to get all five to complete the overall map you know you've got to think about what the minimum requirements are to proceed to the next step and allow the player characters some freedom over trying to waylay their enemies uh okay the next planet as an example is uh vaporius which is a planet that has various cities ruled by priest kings so i guess this is more of a, a social encounter one here where you want the player characters to have to deal with these People who are otherwise, you know, except for the fact they don't get off their own world, they are very powerful, um, you know, very egotistical, and basically will not deal easily with the player characters, especially once the player characters come in and start trying to lord their own authority over this particular group. So, um, definitely a, another planet which is good for that sort of social angle and working out how your player characters interact with people who they need something from as such. Uh, the next one is a bit odd. So the next one is the Light of Terror. So here they've given coordinates to a section of space, basically, and they find there a gas giant around which floats a derelict ship. The Nexus itself is a Eldar construction hanging in space near the planet. So here the PCs literally just go to the Nexus, ignore the ship, and keep moving. You know, thankfully, when I run it, my group decided, oh, that ship looks interesting, we should check that out too. And that's where the real part of this uh, part of the module comes in, you know. But the ship itself has been here for a long, long time, and the the people on board have sort of regressed to a more sort of feral society, and uh, now sort of compete with each other for the various parts of the ship. So, a good opportunity for player characters to see what happens to a, a, a derelict ship in ship in the forty k universe. What could potentially happen to their ship if things worked out poorly, as such. So. Hopefully your player characters are interested enough in the ship to go aboard and get involved in the, the storyline of the Light of Terror. Uh, next planet is called Dross, where we have a sort of a cult that worship the Sky Father and the winds of the planet as such. So the PCs have to deal with this sort of this cult, and it's up to you, I guess, as the gym, whether it's a benevolent cult that could be easily adapted to the worship of the God Emperor or if their very, very um, nature is heretical as such and could therefore could create some dramas of the player characters dealing with them when it comes to trying to find their way to the Dread Pearl. And the final location is something called the Procession of the Damned. So this is this unusual black star, which may be some form of entity, which attracts ships to it and they then become trapped. 
So the PC ship basically ends up trapped along with the other ships as well, for the short term at least, while they try to discover the, the location of the Nexus. And at the same time, they discover the various sort of civilizations living among the processional that have degraded since, they're, since they became trapped and they have to work their own, their own way to get away from the processional as well. So at the end of the day, five locations, you know, you can do as many as you want or as few as you want and give the player characters the opportunity to do them in any order. You can have them encounter some of their allies or rivals along the way or at least find signs of their passage if they should get long second or third or fourth to a particular location. So, yeah, certainly some um, some various options here. Very, I quite enjoyed Chapter 2, but it did take quite some time to run through. Now, the final chapter is called The World Beyond, and this is where the group will actually find the Dread Pearl now they've got the map. It starts off with a sort of a, a, a quandary where the group realises that somebody else is getting ahead of them, and they either have to take heavy risks of pushing their way through the warp without adequate safety, or risk not being the first one to the planet. So there's a different resolution mechanic for either, but it may end off with a, in a space battle with one of the rivals when they arrive over the planet's surface. Uh, but this is just sort of the opening of the chapter. They now end up on the planet itself. And like with earlier chapters, there is a whole series of optional vignettes that you can run through as they explore the surface of this maiden world, which is for the most part ocean with these, uh, with these maiden islands. Uh, along the way, they have the opportunity to pick up things like Eldar artifacts. So there is a race sword, for example, various stones, th- things of perceivable wealth they can acquire while they, they explore this planet. But one of the things they will eventually discover is an army of wraithbone statues. Uh, quite inert, but I think most player characters who've played in role-playing games will figure out that if there's an army of statues, there's probably going to be an army of walking statues at some point in the future. But it has got answers to what happens if the player characters try to destroy them or take their weapons or whatever else it might be. You know, there's a mechanic for that too. Uh, they then meet a group called the Sanctarchs, which are basically a, a human settlement who have been living on this world and have become quite separated from the Imperial Way. And at this point, it's another social challenge. The player characters are basically trying to swing this group towards their side as such. And there's you know various ways they can do that, but it really comes down to how friendly and persuasive and you know what, what the group does to try and endear this group of primitives towards them as well. And uh, then we have the actual war. So what happens is the other rivals arrive, and so suddenly... You know, they are now competing for the planet as well. And at this point in time, the Eldar also reappear and they activate the uh, the Wraithbone army. So we've now got this massive battle. Now, here's what I quite like about this. How this battle plays out has a number of dependent factors. For the most part, it's based upon what level of interaction they've had with the Sanctarchs and how they've managed to convince the Sanctarchs that they're on the same side. And it also comes down to what dealings they've had with the various rivals and which rivals are still here. So you could run this game you know, with, with a few different groups and come up with very different endings depending upon which enemies survive, which, who are actually enemies, who are friends. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you've got this mass combat between this Wraithguard army, these human primitives, the other rogue traders, and the Eldar. And when the, the Eldar Farseer dies... You know, this storm besets the planet, and now the group are trying to escape in a hurry. Uh, they can either try and escape via ship, via teleport if they've got it, try and get a lift on someone else's ship, or 
escape through the Eldar Gateway. Now, I don't know many player characters that would choose to do that, but doing so is not a death sentence. They end up on a planet in the Clixis Sector. Not off-visit one, but one they can still try to get picked up by Imperial forces and all just spend some time away from their ship, uh, you know, wishing they hadn't stepped through an ancient alien portal uh, and been, got stuck on for some time on a, um, on a, on a foundling world. Uh, but the expectation is that the group would more, like, more likely escape by their own ship. They may take some of the Sanctarchs with them. And uh, I guess this is where it leads into the conclusion of the game. My only problem with the conclusion is that the player characters are basically robbed of this perceived great wealth. You know, that they were pushed off the planet. The planet is no longer accessible. What do they actually get? Okay, so they may have some of the Sanctarchs with them. They've got additional people that, that may be important to them as such. Uh, it has said as well that, yes, you've got um, the various Eldar artifacts that they looted from the planet as such, so the, the sword or the, the various gems as such, so there is some perceived value there. But finally, just an increase in their profit factor based on how will they do with the final points total. It represents the notoriety that their crew has picked up from looting the Dread Pearl as such. I like the fact that the end of this module allows for the player characters to finish without having achieved the total number of, of, of um, objective points. I'd always sort of wondered in the past, what happens if you don't get enough? You know, this is, you've got all these various things the player characters can do to earn objective points, and this is your final goal, and they've done all they can do and missed out on some, and they don't have enough points to cover the final goal. This book answers that. It's quite good. It says that the total number of points required for this grand endeavor is 3,000 points. If you have less than 3,000 points, you really haven't, you know, gotten what you had hoped out of this particular module. But you can still have one product factor because what you did do was get some notoriety for the you know the actions that you did take. But if you go over 3,000, okay, now you can get the full profit factor, which is, I think, three for this module, you know, plus any other benefits you might have towards profit factor acquisition. So overall, I really like Lure of the Expanse. It's probably one of my favorite of the adventure books for, for Road Trader. Uh, I would certainly be giving this book probably a solid eight and a half or nine out of 10. Uh, and I'd really say that uh, if you are going to run Rogue Trader, this is a really great way to introduce your player characters to the Coronis Expanse, to Footfall, establish some various rivalries and allies among other Rogue Traders, and, and give them an idea about how something that, like a Grand Endeavor actually works. You know, this is certainly a module that is worth worth running, and I would certainly encourage you to do so. Anyway, let's move on. Ignorance is a blessing. So before I close out the show, since we're now a few days on from Gen Con, I thought I may as well tell you a little bit about what happened after the the Friday night from when Matt and I recorded the earlier segment of the show. Uh, now, as you know, we talked about the fact that there was no announcements at, uh, at the in-flight reporter on the booth, and uh, actually literally just today as I'm recording, an announcement came up on the FFG website about the upcoming release of Enemies Beyond. Sorry, so Enemies Without. Uh, so, you know, obviously there was more going on and I, I sort of, you know, I guess maybe I felt a little bit, uh, hard done by it. There was something that was actually on display there at the show, but then I realized at the end of the day, I actually sat and I watched the last four years worth of in-flight reports. And I guess I've been a bit spoiled by the fact that last year when we went along, there was a big release of Dark Area Second Edition, the announcement of Forgotten Gods. But at previous years, even though there had been, you know, re- releases for the 40k RPGs either at Gen Con or immediately following, you know, there was no announcements during in-flight or, or you know, potentially on the booth at the, uh, the start of the show. So uh, 
you know, it's not to say that just because it didn't make it into in flight, they're still not covering it. And as we can see from today, with the release of or the announcement of, of enemies without, you know, there's still more going on. So uh, I've certainly seen a few clues from various things. Once again, like the Dyes Labs blog that indicate there's more stuff happening. So you know, I wouldn't worry about the future of these role playing games. I think there's still more to be done. And uh, yeah, I, I you know, look forward to seeing what FFG comes out with next. Uh, anyway, so. We did have a. There was an officially organised uh, Dark Heresy breakfast on the Saturday morning, so that included uh, Tim Huckleberry, Max Brook, who we had on the show before as well, and also um, Jordan Goldfarb, who is one of the freelancers who writes for FFG, and he's contributed to all of the uh, Second Ed Dark Heresy books so far. And there were also a couple of, uh, I guess, fans of the game system that came along as well. So that was a good chance to. To catch up, you know, we discussed some of the age-old questions like, how do I stop my group in Black Crusade trying to murder each other? Um, talking about the various game systems, and obviously, we had Tim and and, Matt, and Max and uh, Jordan couldn't talk about what's coming up next, but we could still talk about our own sort of expectations for the game system going forward. And it was a, it was a good breakfast, actually, and really appreciate the guys at FFG putting it on. Uh, we went got to go along and play the actual Dark Heresy game that FFG were running at the con next, which was it was billed as Desolation of the Dead, which is the same module we're running for the Roll Twenty campaign, but it had almost nothing in common. You know, it was based in Hive Desolium. It involved going down the hive, and there was a scene with a boat on a river. That was about all it had in common with Desolation of the Dead. And, and Tim basically explained to me that uh, several months ago, when they were putting up the uh, the games for Gen Con. They had to basically give it a description to put on the website, but they had no idea what they were going to run, so they used the Desolation of the Dead title and description just in case. But Tim really wanted to run a, a different game, and he sort of used uh, Apocalypse Now as a bit of an inspiration for this particular module, which i got to say I really enjoyed. It was a, it was a good group to play with as well, and, and a good game to play too, so certainly I had a lot of fun playing that game. I got to play a, um, a priest, so I was playing the, the Hierophant, and uh, yeah, which was different from the last time I played the game at the Cono. I was playing the Warrior, so I, I mean, not not exactly like priest, not exactly violent, but I got to be more, I guess, a little bit more moderate in my uh, in my gameplay style than my. Yeah, you know, there's no substitute for Zeal Warrior that I played last year at the Con. But no, we, we I think we sort of got through the, the game well, and it was it ran very well to time as well. We didn't feel like we were pushed at all. You know, uh, Tim had been joking the night before with Matt and I about you know running a module with gene stealers and then lo and behold there were gene stealers in this one not active gene stealers just gene stealers held in in cryo status tubes that we couldn't uh, seem to kill as such but uh, also all these various different uh, high tech weapons that Tim threw into the game so Jakero weapons and all these sort of things that uh, uh, Necron uh, rifles and this sort of stuff that the player characters could potentially get their hands on and just to absolute incredible damage with for the final combat which took place on a uh on a, a derelict spaceship half submerged into a uh a, a, a not a corrosive river but a, a you know a disgusting and dirty river um so yeah it was a really good game i really enjoyed that one we did also catch up again with tim and jordan again as well that night after the uh ffg freelancer dinner so we just went down and had some some drinks and some dessert and chatted more about the game setting. You know, we all sort of agreed that, well, we all, Jordan and I were saying how much we really like Rogue Trader as a setting because of the sort of freedom that it gives you. And, uh, yeah, we, we just had, had another good chat. 
the final morning, I, I did go back to the FFG room again, and I'd really wanted to play the uh, Force and Destiny game. So I didn't manage to get onto a table, table of the beta last year, but I did manage to get into a game run by uh, Sam Stewart, who you would also know from having done the show before. He was behind uh, Black Crusade, and uh, he's now looking after the Star Wars line, so he ran Force and Destiny for us, which was a lot of fun. I was really hoping to see how the lightsaber rules went, but I got the one character who didn't, or not the one, but there were three characters had lightsabers, three characters didn't. I got one of the characters that didn't, but I got to see how the rules played out with the other player characters too. So uh, I think that we did pretty well in that game. According to Sam, we were the only group who actually went after the BBEG rather than trying to avoid them the whole time. And they had to sort of find the other groups in the final conflict. We went straight there and dealt with them ourselves. So that went well. All we lost in the group was one player lost an arm. So, you know, I think a win all round, really. It was a good time. And um, I was just stuffed after that. Like I would have recorded more show at the actual con itself. But just from being in the room, uh, the FFG games were in the room alongside the Catalyst Games uh, booth. Or not the booth, but the, the tables as well. So all the Shadowrun missions players. So you're talking 20-plus active tables in a single room. So half the time you had to shout to be heard. So my voice was just absolutely destroyed after those two days in, in those rooms as well. But um, I did have one more chance to catch up with Tim before the sort of close of affairs. So after the whole pack down and the the FFG party that they normally do at the end of the, the show to celebrate the end, uh, Tim and I just caught up for a, another quick chat, sort of talked about not much to do with 40K really, more comics and uh, movies and TV shows, but a bit more a bit more 40K. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we really... That, that's our common interest. We've both worked for GW in the past, so we both have an affinity for it. And I'm sure that Tim feels very privileged to be able to work on these game systems as well. And uh, he's really a great resource, both for the player base and for us. So I always enjoy having Tim on the show. And I know he listens to these episodes as he goes into work on the weekend. So I will say thank you once again, Tim, for putting uh, you know, for spending so much time with us over the, uh, over the Gen Con weekend and for working on these game systems as well. So that's pretty much it for this episode. I will do the, the final community section and, and uh, close out the show. But uh, yeah, Gen Con was a lot of fun. I, I'm not sure if we'll do it next year. It, it's a big cost coming from Australia to go every single year. Uh, I do manage to get work to cover some of my expenses because I managed to plan some meetings in New York at the same time. But uh, yeah, it's just a, a big cost and a big time to be away from our families, especially with Mike now getting married I'm not sure that his uh, his wife to be would be happy with him disappearing off for you know a, a week or so <laughs> again next year for Gen Con, but we'll wait and see. I, I, I never say never; things may change. But uh, no, it was a lot of fun, and um, yeah, hopefully you got to. If you didn't get to go, you got to experience it at least vicariously through the show. Anyway, let's move on to closing it out. All astropaths in the choir chamber. Message incoming. So the final thing we do before we close out the show is just talk about any reviews or comments we've had in the past couple of weeks. So we had two new iTunes reviews uh, this last fortnight. Uh, one from Johnny P.E., I guess. Uh, Johnny has been a massive advocate of our show on RPG.net and on uh, Google+, and he sent through questions in the past we've answered too. I'm guessing it's Johnny P. I'm not sure how to actually pronounce it. I read it all the time, but uh, I'm, there you go. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but also, um, Nailius Quint as well has also left a review for us on iTunes. So we really appreciate those those comments, guys. And once again, to to Johnny, thankfully, thank you for your advocacy for our podcast on the RPG Net forums as well. 
Uh, we didn't get any new questions or comments, I guess, because of all the stuff. Everyone waiting to see what happened at Gen Con. Uh, but hopefully we'll have some more stuff in the next fortnight. If you do want to contact us, you can do so via our website, which is www.grimdartpodcast.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash grimdartpodcast. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash plus sign grimdartpodcast. We tweet through at grimdartpodcast. Our email is show at grimdartpodcast.com. Uh, voicemail, you can access via our website. Go to the right-hand side of the main page and you'll see leave voicemail. And also, don't forget the drive through RPG affiliate link on our main page. And uh, that will take you through to drive through RPG where you can buy de- PDFs and books and support both the makers and the show as well. So coming up, we've got episode 48. It'll be another Death Watch show. We'll be talking about the Imperial Fists and we'll be doing a review of The Emperor Protects. Mike will be back as well. Uh, I'm not sure what the other two topics will be just yet, but we'll work it out before the show comes up. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you then. Before I do close up the show, I want to give one quick shout-out as well to someone I met at Gen Con this year. So last year at Gen Con, I noticed Tim Huckleberry had this awesome T-shirt with a picture of an Inquisitor on the front, and it said, I want you for the Imperial Inquisition. And Tim told me he bought it from a stand at the show uh, where there was a, an artist who was doing her own, screen, uh, her own screen designs for shirts and that she was a big fan of the 40K RPG lines and she had played the Dark Heresy game at the show last year. This year I managed to actually find their booth. So I met uh, Jen from Mystic Revolution and uh, she did, she's an artist who does a number of different shirt designs including a couple of 40K ones. So I bought one for myself and one for Mike. So their website is www dot mystic rev so m-y-s-t-i-c-r-e-v dot com so check it out there's a, a comic on the front page plus also the t-shirt shop and there's i think two 40k design shirts so one has the inquisitor one has uh, the imperial guard marching against tyranids and it says i think die for the emperor or die trying so uh yeah great looking up working from a fan of 40k as well so jen herself runs uh dark heresy and enjoys that and she got to play i think in tim's game on the Sunday at the con this year as well. So shout out to Jen and to Mystic Revolution. Check it out if you like your shirts and you want some 40k shirts and uh, check out the rest of her artwork on there as well. Anyway, that's it for me for tonight. Uh, Thank you for listening to the show. Sorry that most of it was just me. I will have Mike back next time and we'll uh, proceed as normal. So I will catch you when we next broadcast. This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer 40,000, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is a trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing Inc. All other materials are trademark and or copyright of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grimdark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music comes from Mibio's Musicali, music.mibio.com.